Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is episode 41. We're going to talk about a case that was recently denied certiorari by the U.S. Supreme Court. It's Al Alwi versus Trump. The Supreme Court denied cert about a month ago on June 10th of 2019. Denied cert just means that they refused to hear the appeal from the circuit court. So what the circuit court did stands. So while the Supreme Court did not address the issues that were brought up in this case about indefinite detention and how long an authorization for the use of military force lasts, Justice Breyer made a written statement on the denial of cert, which they don't usually do. And that statement from Justice Breyer, I think, is important. It brings up a lot of issues that we need to be concerned about and we need to be aware of. This episode of The Law is Historic. For the first time in 41 episodes, you will hear a voice other than mine. I interviewed Murtaza Hussein. He's a reporter from The Intercept who's been following this case. Indeed, his article in The Intercept prompted my interest in this specific story about Mr. Al-Awi. And after reading his article, which is linked in the notes, along with some other good resources, I sent uh, Mr. Hussein an email asking if he'd be willing to be interviewed for this podcast about the Supreme Court's decision in El Alwi and the things that have led up to that decision. Wasn't sure if I would hear back from him. You know, he didn't know me from Adam. He was kind enough to do so. He responded. He said he'd like to, he, he'd be glad to. He, he, and he has been very, very um, polite in doing that. And we appreciate him being so accommodating. That interview, which we conducted via Skype, is part of this episode. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And look for some upcoming collaborations with speakeasyideas.com. Go check them out online and I'll let you know more details as they become available. And remember, follow me on social media. My Twitter account, personal one, is at bluecarp and on facebook.com slash bluecarp. You can find me as DK Williams. I'd love to hear from you. And most importantly for this podcast, check out the Facebook page for this podcast. Like it, rate it if you would. Share it if you are so inclined. Um, if you're interested in making a donation to this podcast, go to paypal.me slash thelawdkwilliams. Wherever you're listening, we appreciate it. Help pump us up, get the publicity out there. So this case deals with prisoners, one in particular, at Guantanamo Bay. Al Alwi is one of them. And I know the reaction of some of you out there immediately, because I hear it all the time. It's basically, screw those guys, they're terrorists, they have no rights. Now, I hope... The immediate problem with that response or that notion is obvious. Who gets to determine who is a terrorist? If you trust Trump's judgment, did you trust Obama's judgment? The entire point of the Constitution is that no one gets to make that judgment. Not in the executive branch. You can be charged with terrorism by the government, but the government has to prove it. So if your favorite president gets to deem someone a terrorist without any rights because they're terrorists. That's how the argument goes, right? What happens when someone you cannot stand gets to wield that same power? You in trouble. I hope that's obvious, but apparently it's not because I hear it all the time. But Dave, I will also hear. I'm an American. I got rights. Those guys do not. And I've mentioned this before in some other podcasts, but I'll just briefly go over it again. The Constitution, including the amendments, uses the word citizen... 22 times. It uses the word people nine times. This is not an accident. The Bill of Rights, which as we all know is really a bill of restrictions on government power because it doesn't grant a single person a single right. It says those rights exist because you are a human being and these are the things the government cannot legitimately do in the Bill of Rights restrictions. 
uses the word people five out of those nine times. It also uses the word person. For example, the Fourth Amendment says the right of the people, not of the citizens, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, effects, etc. against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. The Fifth Amendment, for example, says no person, not no citizen, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on presentment or indictment of a grand jury, nor shall any person be subject to the same offense, that's double jeopardy, etc., nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That's the Fifth Amendment. Applies to any person, not any citizen. And like I mentioned, they use the word citizen 22 times. So when they use it, they mean it. To be a citizen to vote, you have to be a citizen to be in Congress. They know what that word means. They also know what the word people means and what the word person means. That's everybody. Citizen is specific, smaller group. People in person is everyone. And I know there's a lot to the specifics of the Fourth Amendment, but the basic premise here is that these limits on government in the entire Bill of Rights slash restrictions apply to people, not only to citizens. And you guys, and you know this, if you think about it, if someone who was here illegally robs their liquor store, he still gets arrested, still gets his Miranda rights read to him, which we went over in an earlier podcast. Still, the government has to provide him attorney before they can put him in jail. Another case we went over in an earlier podcast. So those rights attach to him as a person, not because he's a citizen. So I think we know that. You might think that sucks, but it's the truth. And it, and, and it should be that way. Because if you believe in natural rights, those are irrelevant to your nationality. It seems to be something a lot of folks don't get. And I understand, but I just hope more people start to get it. We'll discuss what the executive branch has done what they're doing now and what they have done, both Republicans and Democrats, in violation of these constitutional limits on government and in violation of the people's natural rights. So who are the named parties in this case? Moath, Hamza, Ahmad, Alawi is the plaintiff. He's been detained in Guantanamo for almost 20 years, uh, 18th year now, never been charged with anything. The named defendant is Donald Trump, only because he's the current president. This started when W was president. And when the lawsuit was filed back then, Bush would have been the defendant. Obama would have been the defendant. Now it's Trump just because he's the president. Now, Ali has been, he's been trying to get released for a long time. This is his most recent appeal to the Supreme Court denied last month. So he loses. He stays in custody. And just, this is probably not important, but just so you know, because of the timing of Kavanaugh's nomination and this appeal, Kavanaugh did not participate, as they say, in the consideration or decision of this petition. Just so you know. Justice Breyer made a statement respecting the denial of certiorari. These are the magic words, magic legal words that are used. And just as a reminder, Breyer was nominated by Clinton in 1994. Breyer's currently 80 years old. And this is what he says. This is just him. In the immediate aftermath of the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. So he gives us some good history about what happened in the past and where we are now, how, how we got from there to here. 2011, day after September 11th. Congress passed the Authorization for Use of Military Force, AUMF. The AUMF states that the president may use, quote, all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines, that's the language of the statute, he determines, planned, authorized, committed, or aided those attacks. 
In a 2004 case, and this is Breyer writing, a majority of this court understood the AUMF to permit the president to detain certain enemy combatants for the duration of the relevant conflict. That's important words. Supreme Court already ruled, 2004. This allows the president, the government, at the president's direction, to detain enemy combatants for the duration of the relevant conflict. Relevant conflict was the bombings in 9-11, the terrorist attacks in 9-11. So that was when W. Bush was president. This case was decided roughly three years later. Bush is still president. Then in 2009, 2017, those eight years, Obama was president. And of course, Trump has been president since 2017. It's been 18 years and three presidents since this authorization for use of military force has been passed. That's important. Is this still the same relevant conflict? Breyer goes on. Justice O'Connor's plurality opinion in that 2004 case, 15 years ago, cautioned that if the practical circumstances of that conflict became entirely unlike those of the conflict that informed the development of the law of war, the court's understanding of what the AUMF authorized may unravel. Indeed, Breyer continues, in light of the unconventional nature of the war on terror, there was a substantial prospect that detention for the duration of the relevant conflict could amount to perpetual detention. But as this was not the situation we faced as of that date, back in 2004, Breyer continues, the plurality at that time reserved the question whether the AUMF or the Constitution would permit such a result of indefinite perpetual detention. In my judgment, Breyer says, it is past time to confront the difficult question left open by the 2004 case. Because our nation's past military conflicts have been of limited duration, it has been possible to leave the outer boundaries of war powers undefined. For example, this is me again, you know, Appomattox, war is over. Japan surrendered, the war was over. Germany surrendered, the war was over. Okay, those things ended. But this is a, of a different nature. And that's what Breyer's discussing here. And what O'Connor mentioned in 2004. If, back to Breyer's statement, if, as some fear, terrorism continues to pose dangerous threats to us for years to come, the court might not have this luxury. Talking about allowing someone to be detained for the duration of a conflict. Because if the conflict never ends, you know, where does that leave us? And that's what Breyer's asking. And that's a legitimate question. We should be asking that. Breyer goes on. Some 17 years have elapsed since petitioner Moath Hamza, Agamad, El Alawi, a Yemeni national, was first held at the United States Naval Base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. In the decision below, the Court of Appeals decision to which has been appealed, which they refused to hear, in that decision below, the District of Columbia Circuit agreed with the government, the federal government, that it may continue to detain him so long as, quote, armed hostilities between United States forces and the Taliban and al-Qaeda persist. The government, Trump's government, represents that such hostilities are ongoing, but does not state that any end is sight. Trump is just continuing the position of Obama in this regard. Breyer goes on, as a consequence, al Alawi faces the real prospect that he will spend the rest of his life in detention based on his status as an enemy combatant a generation ago, even though today's conflict may differ substantially from the one Congress anticipated when it passed the AUMF back in 2001, the day after 9-11. Breyer goes on, the denial of a writ of certiorari means our decision not to hear this appeal imports no expression of opinion upon the merits of the case. And that's true to every, anytime they deny certiorari, they're not going to hear a case. 
they're not saying we agree with the lower court. They're just saying we ain't going to hear it. And he's just pointing that out. I would, Breyer says, in an appropriate case, grant certiorari to address whether, in light of the duration and other aspects of the relevant conflict, Congress is authorized and the Constitution permits continued detention, as well as the court should. Breyer lays it all out right there. Only Congress can declare war. And assuming the 2001 AUMF was that, and I'm dubious, it's really not a declaration of war. It's an authorization of force. And it's not the same thing. But the court has accepted it, basically treating it the same way. When does that expire? Right now, Iran is doing stuff in the Persian Gulf. Can Trump use the 2001 AUMF authorization for use of military force to respond militarily against Iran at his discretion, at his determination? Clearly, that is not the same conflict. Let's say the U.S. takes prisoners in a potential conflict with Iran. Can those prisoners be indefinitely detained under this 2001 AUMF, which is still in effect in Alawi's case? Not legitimately, but will the government argue that they can? Probably. They probably will, if we get to that. And remember, people, this isn't about Trump. It's about executive power. It does not matter who's wielding it. It matters that the executive is not a monarch and has constitutionally limited authority. It is up to Congress to exercise its legitimate constitutional authority, which unfortunately they have basically abdicated to the executive for political reasons. If they just let the executive do it, they don't have to take a stand. They can't be held responsible for it by the voters. Oh, that's the president. It's not us. Nobody ever says, but that's you guys' job. And that's our fault. We don't hold them accountable. We, you, me, everyone else must hold them accountable for their illegitimate acts at every level of government. And if we're not aware of it, we certainly can't hold them accountable. And don't look the other way just because your team is in power right now. They ain't going to be in power forever. And looking away right now lets the next guy use that same power against you. And again, to those who say, Dave, I'm an American citizen. I got rights. Those guys are foreigners and terrorists and enemy combatants. The government does not make that distinction. You might. The government does not. The Obama administration assassinated an American citizen without any judicial process, without any charges, without any trial. They just killed him. And that's one reason I like The Intercept and Glenn Greenwald, because this is how I first found out about this, this Anwar al-Awlaki case. Yeah, he's got a funnier name than you and me, but he was an American citizen born in the United States, and he actually attended college at Colorado State University just up the road from here. I know someone who knew him at Colorado State. He was put on a kill list by a Democratic administration, Barack Obama and Eric Holder, then he was assassinated in Yemen. Look for the show notes for links about more specifics on that. And in recently, in 2016, or more recently, during the funeral of Lavoy Fincicum, some of you guys remember him, he was the rancher killed by the federal government during the occupation of the wildlife refuge up in Oregon, that whole issue. So during his funeral, the federal government warned local law enforcement about potential quote, domestic extremists, end quote, who might use the funeral as an opportunity to use violence. So they're talking about American citizens like Lavoy Fincicum as a potential domestic extremist, just like El Alaki. He's got a funnier name, but he's still a domestic extremist. And they killed him extrajudicially. They assassinated him. And what they did to Fincicum isn't that far removed. One of the signs that the government told local law enforcement to look out for was the Gadsden flag. I kid you not, there's a link to a Reason article in the notes that discusses this, gives you the citations, gives you the quotes. Here is the American federal government telling law enforcement to be wary of you or whoever because you have a don't tread on me sticker on your car because you might that might make you a domestic extremist. 
And what is a violent domestic extremist? It's a domestic terrorist. And remember, if terrorists don't have any rights and can be assassinated or held indefinitely without any charge, and you might be deemed a terrorist because of your Gadsden flag, you don't have any rights either. Connect the dots, people. What the government did to Al-Alaki and what they did to Lavoie Fincicum and what they might do to any citizen, any other citizen, is not that far apart. Don't kid yourselves. Al-Alaki, sitting in prison without charges, not a citizen, but you can be too because the federal government makes that argument in this case. I'll link you to their entire legal brief. The important part of that is that they wrote in the Al-Alaki case about indefinite detention, quote, this is the federal government's lawyers, the Justice Department. Quote, there is no bar to this nation's holding one of its own citizens as an enemy combatant. End quote. So enemy combatants can be detained indefinitely and even assassinated like Obama did. So if you don't care about what the government does to people named Alwi and Alaki, you should. Especially after you've seen what they'll do to people with more anglicized names, like Fincicum. The government makes no distinction, and all the links are in the show notes. Read them for yourselves. You know how much I emphasize reading documents themselves. That's why I provide them for you. And I'm not saying this is an easy thing to figure out, but I'm saying we need to discuss it and be aware of what the government's doing. Because if we ain't aware of it, nothing's going to change. And if it can happen to Fincicum, it can happen to you and me. So we got to defend the Awis and the Alakis. Because the government doesn't make that distinction. They literally wrote that. So I was glad to talk about Alwi's case. That's the one Justice Breyer made a statement about just last month with the intercepts Murtaza Hussein. We're on Skype, so I apologize if the sound quality is less than excellent, but I very much appreciate it. And here we go, here for yourself. We are pleased to have Murtaza Hussein with us in this uh, interview. I found out about Murtaza from an article he wrote in The Intercept, which I've been following since, um, well, I've been following Glenn Greenwald since before he started The Intercept. And I think it's a great place to um, find um, unbiased information. I mean, they've got a point of view without a doubt, but I think they do a good job of uh, uh, covering issues in a way that a lot of other places don't. And what really got me about uh, what um, Murtaza had written is a story about a gentleman, Moeth Al-Aloui, who has been in indefinite detention in Guantanamo Bay for uh, 17 years at least, and uh, the government that is he's been trying he's filed an appeal and the U.S. Supreme Court just denied hearing that appeal. Uh, but Justice Breyer wrote an, an opinion about that denial, saying that maybe they're going to take this up. This deals with the uh, authoriza authorization for use of uh, military force that was enacted the day after 9/11 in 2001, and that is still the statutory basis for keeping people like Alawi uh, in Guantanamo without ever facing charges. Is that about right, uh, Maz? What else can you fill in on those gaps? Yeah, so the important thing, I think, is the context of this case. Uh, Muaz Alawi has been in Guantanamo since the early days of the prison, and we're reaching almost two decades of the prison's operation. Uh, he's never been convicted of any crime. He is in a sort of legal gray zone to this day. And he's continuing to contest his case and have a basic habeas corpus afforded to him. And, uh, you know, 18 years into it, he hasn't reached that basic standard of legal consideration yet. And you mentioned that he hasn't been convicted of a crime. Correct me if I'm wrong, he hasn't even been charged with anything. Is that right? 
That's correct. He yes. hasn't been charged or convicted of anything. Right. And what is the U.S. government's um, justification? What's their argument for doing this? The argument for Moaz and a lot of other Guantanamo detainees, particularly those who come from Yemen, is that their home countries are too dangerous to release them into. Uh, these guys themselves may be dangerous, and there's no safe way we can release them. And yet, we're still also not able to charge them with anything because either because there's not evidence or evidence was obtained through torture and is thus tainted. Uh, so effectively, they are people who are referred to as forever prisoners because the government is unwilling to release them, but also unwilling to charge them or unable to charge them with any crime. Yeah, that seems very problematic to me without even being able to charge them with something. Much, I mean, not, I'm not even talking about a conviction. That might be impossible to get or hard to get, but charging them with something? I've never known the government to have any difficulty doing that. Um, and, they, and yet they, they haven't done it here for these prisoners in Guantanamo. That's right. Uh, you have to remember, too, that uh, 2000, in the time when these guys were captured, a lot of the Guantanamo detainees, uh, the U.S. was hoovering up people around the greater Middle East uh, in a sort of panic response to the 9-11 attacks and an aggressive response aimed at uh, getting mainly Arabs in the Afghanistan, Pakistan region uh, into their custody. And a lot of the detainees that uh, ended up in Guantanamo turned out to be innocent because they had been sold to the Americans by bounty hunters or they had just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. So there wasn't much evidence or it was a very murky situation at the time. So when Moaz was caught, he was a very young man. He was in his early 20s. And the circumstances in which he's caught, the political circumstances have changed. And also the circumstances of his detention were never very clear in the first place. So in a way, it's disturbing that he's been in jail so many years without charge, but it's not surprising because he, in many ways, has been an unfortunate, uh, he's been very unfortunate to be detained in these political circumstances that he was. And uh, so some of these people that were rounded up, like uh, Aloui, uh, Moaz Aloui, you said that they were uh, found innocent. Were many of these people released? Yes, Guantanamo's uh, population, I think it reached a peak around 800 people, and it's down to less than 10% of that today. Uh, many people in the early years were released outright because they were innocent. Uh, many were released as part of deals where they confessed to certain acts in exchange for having their release from custody. Uh, some of them uh, were admitted to acts and were or admitted to membership in groups and then were released uh, when some safe way of releasing them was found. But, you know, it was famously said that uh, uh, by uh, uh, Colin Powell, or sorry, uh, Lawrence Wilkerson, the former aide to Colin Powell right. uh, during the Bush administration, that it was known by the Bush administration that the majority of detainees at Guantanamo were innocent, but that they were still kept there for political reasons for many years after the camp was opened. So, yeah. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so it, it has a very uh, checkered history, the camp and the legal process there. 
And who were the who was rounding up these people in uh, Yemen and other places? Was this the U.S. military or what group was collecting these prisoners um, at the time? In some cases, it was the military. In some cases, many cases, most cases, it was local partners of the United States, local governments, uh, police, uh, bounty hunters. Got it. Non non governmental authorities. So there really wasn't a clear idea of who they were detaining at the time. And certainly the majority of people had nothing to do with 9-11. And I know the immediate reaction that whenever somebody talks about the, the prisoners in Guantanamo is somebody will always say, yeah, but these guys aren't American citizens. They are, they've been deemed enemy combatants. Um, and what I always have to remind them of that is, first of all, being deemed something doesn't mean you are. And if, if the executive branch can deem someone something, they can deem you something. And if we don't take care of or, or use uh, our, our um, civil rights in this country to apply to people that are not American citizens, then that might be one thing. But the government is actually arguing that it, these same rules would apply to American citizens. Isn't that right? That's exactly what's very concerning about Moaz's case recently is because after all these years, the government is back to asserting very aggressive powers uh, or very expansive powers when it comes to detaining people without charge and specifically noting that it has a power to do this to American citizens if deemed necessary as well. So I think what's occurred is that during the Bush administration and afterwards there were some pushback against uh, legal overreach by the government and then during the Obama administration it's not that the powers rolled back but they became more circumspect in asserting them now we're back with the Trump administration and there's a sense that the mask is off once again and now government lawyers are back to making arguments that they haven't made so forthrightly since the early days of the war on terrorism. Yeah, and this is a quote from what the U.S. government government lawyers filed in the Al, um, the Alwi case. And this is from your article, and I'll link to this in the show notes, um, about the Guantanamo Bay and indefinite suspicion written by Murtaza Hussein. This is a quote from the nation's filing, the U.S. government's filing. There is, quote, there is no bar to this nation's holding one of its own citizens as an enemy combatant. I mean, if that doesn't scare the hell out of everybody, I don't know what will. Right. And, you know, many times, in most cases, most people, the normal response is to rationalize it based on present political circumstances that, well, even if this precedent exists, it's not going to affect me in the foreseeable future. But things can change quite quickly. And there could be black swan events the way 9-11 was a black swan event, uh, in which case the assertion of powers like this by the government or their entrenchment could affect people who never thought that they would have to worry about being deemed an enemy combatant. Right. And there, and the U.S. government has done that before. And I think this might have been my first um, introduction to, to Greenwald, is the case of um, Anwar al-Alaki, al um, who was an American citizen, who during the Obama administration was ordered assassinated without any judicial process at all. So it has happened to American citizens, correct? That's correct. Uh, the U.S. government uh, extrajudicially killed an American citizen uh, in the Aulaki case. And, you know, it's so hard to explain to people who, or to 
explain the consequence of this to people who are not thinking of it in a legal sense. Right. Because, uh, and in one hand, the, well, the government's saying this guy is bad, and he's saying things which are against the United States, and you know he's taking a risk, and this is the consequences of that. But the legal precedent is so much more dangerous and so much more. Uh, it's, it's a sinister connotation towards it because if you're an American citizen, there's not a death penalty for saying things vigorously opposed to the United States or even acting against the United right. States. Uh, you have to face some sort of legal... Uh, sorry, there's not an extrajudicial death penalty. You have right. to face some sort of legal process. And the fact that now there are certain things you can do, which means the government can kill you without trial, uh, that should be alarming to everyone, no matter what your politics are. Right. I mean, if the executive branch can deem, just de I love that word deem, they're just going to deem someone an enemy combatant, then they can be extrajudicially assassinated because we're going to have that much trust in the, trust in the executive branch. Uh, that is not any type of republic uh, that I have ever heard of. I mean, that, that is a totalitarian regime. Exactly. It's, uh, so it feels like something out of a totalitarian regime or a return to uh, medieval situation where the king can just uh, deem someone to be executed yeah. uh, by writ. Right. Uh, it's something that should not be entrenched in a democratic system. And the fact that it was successfully uh, carried out under the Obama administration should be cause for deep concern. Because even if uh, politically in the short term one said that they were to trust a certain administration, you have no idea who's going to govern 10 years yeah, from now. It's going to change. Govern Exactly. And <laughs> right. even after Obama came Trump. So, right. you know, yeah, it, it was very short-sighted. Right. And Obama used the extrajudicial assassination. That was him that did LIK, him and Eric Holder. And now that same power is in is, is within somebody who's on a completely coming from a different political place. And that's so, right. yeah, that, that's the what people have to keep in mind as well. And just for uh, Al Aki had a Colorado connection. I'm sitting here in Denver. Al Aki went to Colorado State University, and his son was born in Denver, who was actually later uh, also killed in a drone strike. And you know, if, if we're going to start the United States doing this just because the executive branch deems people a threat, then there, there's nothing they can't do by just uh, deeming you a threat. And that, to me, is what's incredibly, incredibly frightening about this precedent that is being set here. Yeah, that that's right. Uh, this this type of thing, it's a bitter harvest uh, that comes only later. So maybe in the short term, people accepted something under uh, the legal precedent to be created under this administration, but it's only only the span of decades that we'll actually know what the full consequences are. Right, and and one of the other legal issues um, involving Moaz Al Alwi in Guantanamo now, who's never been charged, been there coming up in twenty years is the legitimacy of the original, the AUMF, the Authorization for Use of Military Force, which was uh, passed in 2001, like you mentioned in your article, the day after 9-11. And that was specifically addressed to uh, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, if I got that correctly. And now the nature of the, uh, the conflict that the government is saying is still in effect, is still part of this 2001 congressional permission, um, it's completely changed from its original purpose. At least that's the argument that um, Al Weed's making, and that at least Justice Breyer seems to be amenable to. Is that accurate? That's right. And now there are 
rumblings about using the AUMF to justify a war with Iran, perhaps, right. which would be totally out of the scope of what it was originally intended for. Uh, you know, this is something that who knows if or when the AUMF will ever be taken off the books or made in, invalid for the present moment because it's taken on a life of its own. It's being justified for armed conflicts which uh, were never envisioned at the time that it was promulgated. Uh, exactly. It could go on for the next hundred years if, if the government tried to. They, they would probably try to let it do that. And and this is just an example of things I like to point out is that if, if we abide by the Constitution, this type of thing is going to be less likely to happen. I think that because Congress has the authority to declare war, they can't legitimately just hand that over to the executive and say, you guys do the wars, um, just do them. We're going to let we're going to give that decision to you guys which I think in, a set, in essence is what they've done here and they've allowed to happen. And that's not the way our constitution is designed. And I think that is something we all should be concerned about. That's right. It's yeah. a complete abdication of responsibility. Uh, and as you said, it's handing it over to the executive where it does not belong, at least not for this extended period of time uh, with this wide ambit. Yeah, exactly. Um, and people can uh, follow you on Twitter at Maz, M-A-Z, M. Hussein, and that's H-U-S-S-A-I-N. So follow uh, Murtaza on Twitter there. Any other place that uh, people can find you and follow your work? Uh, Twitter is the best place, and also The Intercept. Uh, articles are posted there periodically. Uh, and, yeah, that, that's that's where you find me. Great, great. Thank you. And I'm going to uh, keep an eye on this uh, Alwi case and uh, let everybody uh, know if there are any developments that, and, and in general to the AUMF passed in 2001, what the legal status of that uh, might be on an ongoing basis. And we appreciate you very much uh, coming by and letting us talk to you about this. And uh, like I said, we'll link to your articles. We'll link to the actual brief that the U.S. government made this claim in, that they can declare any U.S. citizen an enemy combatant and keep them in, in detained without ever charging them. This is great stuff. It's important stuff for people to know what's going on. And I appreciate uh, the, that you are doing this work and getting that out there, Maz. Well, thank you for having me to discuss it. All right, and maybe uh, maybe we'll have you back sometime. I appreciate it if, you, if you'd be uh, so kind. But thank you very much, and um, uh, best wishes. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Al. Uh, glad to come on anytime. There you have it. I clearly need to hone my interviewing skills, but it's been a while. It was fun anyway, and I appreciate Murtaza Hussein for taking the time to speak to just uh, an anonymous little blogger like me. I do appreciate that. Follow him at The Intercept and on Twitter. Those links are in the show notes. I hope the message that the Constitution refers to the people, not just to the citizens, in the Bill of Rights restrictions, and that if terrorists don't have rights, all the government has to do is call you a terrorist, and you're out of luck. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 41, Moath al-Alwi versus Donald Trump. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com, and be on the lookout for some upcoming collaborations with speakeasyideas.com. Check them out. Tell them you're looking forward to uh, seeing me work with them. Holler at me with your comments. Again, my personal Twitter's at the Blue Carp. Same thing on Facebook. And the Facebook page for this podcast, The Law with D.K. Williams. And you can go to paypal.me slash The Law, D.K. Williams, if you'd like to make a contribution to this effort. Spread the word. Let me know what you think. Criticize me. Praise me. Just don't be quiet. Let me know something. And remember, heck no, I won't do what you tell me. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously. 